The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Dow Orion. She is a permaculture designer, teacher, homesteader, and mother living in Southern Oregon. She teaches permaculture design at Oregon State University and at Aprovecho, a 40-acre nonprofit sustainable living educational organization. Dow consults on holistic farm, forest, and restoration planning through Resilience Permaculture Design, LLC. She holds a degree in agroecology and sustainable agriculture from UC Santa Cruz. Her interest in restoration was piqued when studying botany, wildcrafting, and herbalism at the Columbine School of Botanical Studies in Eugene, Oregon. She has a keen interest in integrating the disciplines of organic agriculture, sustainable land use planning, ethnobotany, and ecosystem restoration in order to create beneficial social, economic, and ecological outcomes. I heard Dow speak at the 34th Annual Beyond Pesticides Forum in Portland, Maine, where I was impressed with her ability to connect the dots between the way we farm, the way we produce our foods, and our overall planetary and public health. And I would argue that her book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, titled Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration, is really at the heart of public health and sound nutrition. So welcome, Dow. It is such a pleasure to have you with me. Thanks so much for having me. I have to ask you, I think permaculture is a relatively new term for many of us. I don't think that, at least speaking for myself, I really didn't have a firm understanding of what that was. So can you just describe to me what permaculture is? Sure. Permaculture design is a system of integrating all of people's needs with the larger landscape. So we're looking at ourselves as part of nature and seeing that the things that we need, like food and shelter, medicine, all kinds of other things are can come from the landscape around us. And it's a design system that kind of integrates all of those things into our local place. Mm-hmm. Well, what led you to write a book specifically on invasive species? Well, my background was in organic farming and permaculture design when several years ago I was offered a job as a botanist doing restoration work with my local county public works department. And as soon as I went into the position, it became very clear that the kind of dominant narrative was the need to eradicate invasive species through the use of herbicide. And that's pretty much what everybody around me was saying and For me, with my background in holistic land management, I just couldn't really, it was very shocking to me that that was the approach that people were taking. And I decided that I wanted to delve into the research around invasion ecology and really start to think about the practice of restoration from a more holistic perspective because I really feel like the use of these herbicides and other pesticides for non-plant invasive species is only going to continue as invasion processes 
also, you know, that's not going to stop. So we really need to be looking at this issue from a much wider perspective and get some of those pesticides off the table when it comes to assessing our tools and resources for doing sound ecosystem management. Yeah, and I think that what your book does is it gives us a much broader understanding of how and why invasives exist. And you also give examples from all over the country. I know that I live in the Midwest, and I see the invasive battle going on all around me. And some of the organizations that we think would be based in a more holistic management program seem to also rely on these herbicides. And when I ask about that, what I'm told is that, look, we don't have the manpower to handle these invasives any other way than to use these herbicides, often, as you describe in the book, near waterways, so those poisons will also affect the aquatic life in those watersheds and probably seep into our groundwater and eventually come through our faucet. So how do we change the dominant narrative or how do we get people to think beyond the barriers of, well, you know, we don't have enough manpower to handle removing the invasives physically, we have to use these chemicals? Well, I think anytime there's a proliferation of a certain plant or animal, it's important to think about the ecological context that they exist within. They're not malevolent beings. They are representative of larger ecosystem dynamics. And even if we go towards the route of removing them, we really have to first be thinking about addressing the larger processes that they represent in an ecosystem. So that's one way I think that land managers who are on the ground now can start to approach this issue holistically. But also I think there's a larger conversation to be had about how people in general, just lay people, you know, who are going about their day-to-day lives, relate to their ecosystems around them and kind of our conception of nature and how we fit into it, I think, is a, an interesting part of this discussion as well, because I think, to a large degree, many invasive species are representative of kind of highly disturbed ecosystems where we could be working to create agricultural systems that aren't as disturbing to the soil, to waterways, et cetera, through the high rates of sedimentation and nutrient influx into aquatic ecosystems, to forested ecosystems where we might expect that they're just going to stay the same forever, um, that's not necessarily the case. And we really need to be thinking about how ecosystems are changing and interacting with them more to encourage biodiversity. Yeah, I want to touch on your mention of the word biodiversity because you bring that up in the book and that how we have been taught to look at invasive species as a threat to biodiversity, and yet if we look at where we have lost the most biodiversity, it's really been intentional with a lot of the monocultures that we plant that lead to problems with invasives coming in. Yes, there's three crops, corn, wheat, and soy, that cover nearly 300 million acres in the United States alone. And that's far more land than is covered by any invasive species or all the invasive species in the United States. If you added up the acreage of land that's covered by invasives, it wouldn't even touch that number. 
So our perspective, in a way, has been shifted away from the kind of root of the problem that's driving the biodiversity crisis, which is our agricultural production system. You know, that's 300 million acres of land that was once biodiverse prairie, riparian area, wetland, forest, etc. So I feel like within the environmental movement, this kind of narrow focus on invasive species as a problem within ecosystems gives us a sense of doing something when we're out there pulling them out or, you know, interacting with the ecosystem in that way. But the larger problems remain unaddressed unless we're actively working on that kind of reforming agricultural practices and policies. So it's all connected. (laughs) Right, right. And that, of course, is the heart of ecological systems thinking. Well, I'm wondering, you know, after reading your book, if we don't need a different word, you know, maybe the term invasive species needs to be studied in terms of how we got there and how we think about it. If you could find a different word for a species, or it's usually a, a demonized single species, how would you reframe this conversation? Well, it's an interesting question because I thought a lot when I was writing about whether to introduce kind of a new, more neutral term to describe the phenomenon. Because that phrase, invasive species, is so loaded and it's almost threatening. But one of the interesting lines of research that I went into for one of the chapters was looking at the phenomenon of invasion as a driving process of evolution. Mm. And I kind of stumbled across some articles looking at how Invasion has been a process that's created the biodiversity that we know today. And if you think about, you know, the long-term perspective of Earth system history, all ecosystems have been invaded by lots of different things over a long time frame. And it's stimulated speciation. That's one of the factors of natural selection. Even the finches, the 13 species of finch that Darwin found in the Galapagos Islands that stimulated his realization about natural selection, researchers have found that those 13 species originated from a single species of bird that invaded that island ecosystem two million years ago. Wow. So it's kind of looking at processes like that as kind of broadening the perspective of what invasion means. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should, in my opinion, just ignore some conversations about what's happening in the ecosystems where we live today. But invasive species are just a part of a larger series of ecological changes that are going on, some of which we can influence, some of which things are going to be harder to influence, such as climate change. Right. There's evidence that certain invasive species are proliferating more intensely in the presence of elevated carbon dioxide. Right. Um, And they're actually more competitive in the context that we're living in now. And while I'm hopeful that we have some drawdown of carbon dioxide, I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen in any meaningful time frame when it comes to these types of species doing incredibly well. And other species are being shown to not thrive in elevated carbon dioxide. So it's important, I think, to look at some of the research that's being done in invasion ecology about these certain species and really think about 
what it means, you know, perhaps these species are anchors for future ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's hard to acknowledge that, that's the kind of future planning that we have to be cognizant of. That things are really shifting. We're kind of in the midst of it, and it's hard to let go of what once was, but here we right. are. <laughs> Right. Well, I think the chapter that you made reference to is Chapter 4, A Matter of Time, which begins with a quote by Charles Darwin, which says, It is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent that survives. It is the one that is the most adaptable to change. And I think that if we think about that, with regard to climate change that we're experiencing now and the increase of CO2 and how that's affecting the plants and the species on Earth, it's really fascinating. And I love your approach to say, well, maybe we are having new base species and finding a way to live with them while changing some of our dangerous practices might be the best route to survive. Yeah, I mean, many invasive species offer a lot of opportunities is the way that I like to think of them to enhance ecological processes that are already going on. For example, invasive nitrogen fixing plants offer the opportunity of you know, making compost, using them for mulch or animal fodder, which can happen in the context of moving the ecosystem where they're currently found towards a more climax type forest ecosystem, for example, mm-hmm. by returning organic matter to the soil. Right. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dow Orion. She is a permaculture designer, teacher, homesteader, and mother living in Southern Oregon. She teaches permaculture design at Oregon State University and at Aprovecho, a 40-acre nonprofit sustainable living educational organization. And we are talking about her excellent book titled, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration. And I cannot recommend this book enough simply because I think it's very much needed right now as we are facing climate change challenges and as we reassess our environment and how we tell our narratives about what agriculture is or should be, specifically with regard to man's perception of our domination over nature as opposed to working with her. Let's launch into another topic here, Dow, and that has to do with, I'm going to jump around the book a little bit, but I want to go back to the section on ethics. The title is Against All Ethics. And since we were talking about CO2, you brought something up here that I was very surprised to learn, and that is that glyphosate, which is the leading herbicide applied to the earth, raises CO2 levels. I had no idea. Yeah, I was really surprised to come across that research, although, you know, in thinking about the larger scheme of things, it makes sense given the rapid elevation of both use of glyphosate and CO2 in the atmosphere. The primary breakdown product of glyphosate, when it does break down in the soil, which can take up to three years in certain types of soil, is carbon dioxide. So, you know, when you think about the fate of some of these pesticides in the soil, the kind of general 
idea that's bandied about is that, oh, they just break down. Right. But the question is, well, what do they break down into? <laughs> yeah. And for glyphosate, you know, there's a couple of different compounds in there, but the main one is CO2. Right. Well, you write that the USDA found that 55% of glyphosate applied is released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide within four weeks of application. Given that we're facing potentially catastrophic climate change in the years ahead, we need to scrutinize the widespread use of glyphosate on these grounds as well. In addition, you talk about how the soil microorganisms are changed by the application of glyphosate as well as many other of these herbicides and other toxins. And so when we think about getting rid of invasive species or restoring the land to the way it had been, we never really talk about restoring the soil. Yeah, and that was an interesting part of my coming into writing this book is that in the context of the job that I had on this big wetland restoration project, they had used Roundup across the 60-acre site twice, broadcast spraying. And the idea in that framework is that you can just spray it and then apply your native seed and the native plants into that, what they call a moonscape in the restoration world. Then, to me, you know, knowing that how glyphosate acts in the soil to hinder and kill many types of bacteria, soil microorganisms, you know, the idea that native plants are just going to do well in that environment is somewhat counterintuitive. And I didn't find within the restoration community that people were really thinking about the effects of these herbicides on the soil and whether you were really creating the conditions for the native plants that you want. And I saw a lot of, quote, restoration projects that after two years, they were just reinvaded again, unless there was consistent herbicide applied. It's kind of like this so pesticide treadmill, you're creating this cosmetic appearance of native plant dominance, but the soil is telling another story, which is that it's not of the condition that native plants require. Mm-hmm. And I was so interested to learn about how ubiquitous this practice is for quote-unquote restoration. Every organization that we think would be favoring true respect for ecological systems just accepts the fact that we spray, and as you say, we broadcast the seed, the native seeds, and then maybe we're a little troubled by perhaps the lack of the the seed maybe not taking root as we had hoped. Yeah, I mean, the more that I interviewed people and just researched the extent of the practice of herbicide as a first resort for restoration, I was really shocked because there are people and highly trained and educated people within the world of restoration who just think of that approach first and as the first and best approach. And it was just interesting for me as an organic farmer because coming into this field, I never think about using herbicide. Like, it's just not a part of my mind frame. So when I have weed pressure on my farm, I see it as more of a, an issue of the quality of the soil or the condition of the soil there's more of a long-term dynamic relationship of building up the soil microbial community to, you know, change the types of, quote, weeds that are coming in at any time. And it's the same on a larger scale, but I feel like that kind of organic management perspective hasn't really been brought to the field of restoration. And I hope that that 
becomes more common. Right. Although, as you also bring up in this chapter against all ethics, part of the reason why we probably think the way we do is because how our research is funded at universities. So if the research questions all focus on how much or when to apply herbicides rather than asking what can we use besides herbicides, that's perhaps how we think in such a narrow frame. Yeah, to me, that was one of the saddest features of researching that chapter was really looking at where the funding for studies about weed management comes from. And a lot of land-grant universities and publicly funded universities are having trouble in the current funding atmosphere securing enough money for their graduate students to do research. And the companies that have money, sadly enough, are the pesticide manufacturers. And so they are funding most of the research that's going on when it comes to weed management and weed science. Mm-hmm. And very few studies even exist about organic management approaches. And so the common narrative becomes, oh, well, it doesn't work. But right. you know, there haven't even really been trials. So there's a lot of room to grow in that context. Absolutely. And uh, just to give our listeners some idea, this is an excellently referenced book. Everything that you have is very well researched. So, for example, a 2012 report from Food and Water Watch found that nearly 25% of funding for agricultural research at public institutions comes from private companies and that these companies also fund the development of new campus infrastructure, provide money for endowed professorships, and enlist industry representatives to sit on research committees that decide on departmental funding and project proposals. And then also in that same vein, you talk a little bit about organizations such as the Nature Conservancy and where they get money and who their partners are. So you talk about here that Monsanto donated 120 gallons of Roundup to the Florida Keys branch of the Nature Conservancy for its work on invasive species removal. The Nature Conservancy of Hawaii was awarded over $130,000 from the Monsanto Fund since 2006 for watershed restoration. And then you also talk about how some of the herbicides that have become popular in restoration Their formulations, and I love the names that they're giving, so this one is called Habitat, they're routinely applied in certain areas where there would be a close proximity to a water source. So the material safety data sheet for Habitat warns against applying this herbicide within half mile of potable water sources, including rivers, streams, reservoirs, and lakes, and then goes on to describe how to use it in those same ecosystems. Is no one else seeing the insanity, really, of, of this type of situation? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like the idea that invasive species pose such a threat to ecosystems has led to, it's like an exemption. And even at the Beyond Pesticides conference that we were both at, there was this really great bill that was introduced in this county in Maryland to ban the cosmetic use of herbicide on all public and private-owned properties in the area, but invasive species were exempted from that ban, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. And and I've seen that in other contexts where land managers are like, okay, well, we'll stop spraying it 
on the parks where the kids run around on the grass, but on the trails and other potentially less intensively used areas, we have to use herbicide. Right. Um, and their use in waterways is definitely something that needs to be brought to the fore because it's something that a lot of people don't even really know that it's happening. There's not a lot of uh, requirements for signage that people don't know when and what has been applied, or even that it's been applied. Um, Yeah. So if you're at a park and your toddler wants to put his feet in the little creek or stream, maybe it would give parents reason for pause. Yeah, I definitely think that there should be more of a conversation about their use in public areas, including waterways. Right. Well, Dow, we just have a few minutes left. So I've been pulling pieces out of this book that really hit home and really touched my heart. But I want to give you a chance to just bring anything forth from this book that you want to make sure our listeners know. Well, one of the most powerful threads of research for me that I think is helpful for people to conceptualize one of the major themes for solutions uh, about this concept is rethinking the idea of wilderness because a lot of my research centered around um, ethnoecology, ethnohistory, and the role that indigenous people played in shaping their ecosystems. And I think a lot of the ways that the common conception of invasive species plays out is that nature is this passive kind of entity and invasive species come in and mess it up. But really, if we look back at the historical research and anecdotal evidence that's more and more becoming available throughout North America, we see that humans had a real hand in creating the habitat for many of what we know as native species. So it's not necessarily a passive nature that exists without human interaction, if we can think of these ecosystems as ones that are whose management regime, which used to include fire and planned grazing in many, many places throughout the U.S., to have that removed from the landscape makes room for invasive species because of all of the other types of changes that have simultaneously accompanied those shifts, such as the introduction of annual agriculture, of domestic livestock, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really important piece of this is kind of understanding the traditional ecological knowledge and use of many native plants and the context of them being cultivated rather than wild. Mm-hmm. Um, many indigenous people would say that the, quote, wilderness area is one that hasn't been managed. And they that perspective is Uh, different than the one that's commonly put forward as people stay out of these areas, and that's for the benefit of nature. But there's some interesting discussions to be had about our appropriate role in managing landscapes. Well, I want to thank you very much for your book. We've been speaking with Dow Orion, author of Beyond the War on Invasive Species, A Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration, This is an excellent book to read and discuss as we face climate change challenges. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you again, Dal, for giving such a wonderful presentation at Beyond Pesticides and also writing such a terrific book and for spending time with me today. Thank you.